The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox this Thursday morning with Steve Sedgwick, Karen Cho and Jeff Cutmore. These are your headlines. Credit Suisse posts a net loss of 252 million Swiss francs in the first quarter, where Arcagos and Greensill scandals have rocked the lender. The CEO, Thomas Gottstein, calls it unacceptable. We're going to hear from the man himself at 8CET. U.S. stocks, though, bouncing back following two days of losses as the Dow gains more than 300 points, whilst the Nasdaq rises more than a percent as investors pile into stocks linked to the economic recovery. Airbus launches a major shakeup of its aero parts manufacturing network, reorganizing production lines in France and Germany as it looks to cut costs. On Earth Day, US President Joe Biden kicks off his leaders' climate summit as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen vows to tackle the, quote, existential threat of climate change. After sitting on the sidelines for four years, the U.S. government is fully committed to rejoin the fight against climate change. And it's decision time for the ECB, with the central bank expected to keep rates on hold as calls grow louder for Christine Lagarde to scale back its bond buying. Very good morning to you. We've got a high roster of CEOs on the show today, including, as I mentioned in the headlines, Thomas Gottstein. And is that where we start with Credit Suisse, which has now posted, as I said in the heads, a 252 million Swiss franc first quarter loss. You might be wondering where Jeff Cutmore is at the moment. Uh, he is actually, as we speak, preparing for our interview with Thomas Gottstein, which, as I say, will bring to you in exactly 58 minutes time. Now, the fact of the matter is it has been a stunningly tough time for the Swiss bank not only rocked by uh, issues over the last year, concerns uh, about their compliance uh, and risk management, but uh, of course the shares failing quite ignominiously, I would say, to find any form of a rally at the moment. And I'm just looking on my screen uh, at a multi-month chart, which shows that despite the fact that equity markets around the globe have been reflating, shares in uh, Credit Suisse uh, last traded at 9.38, as you can see, uh, as the company has been struggling up till now to draw a line uh, under the Greensill and Arcagos positioning issues as well and their exposure to those twin issues. Now, they are talking today about a loss, as I say, of 252 million Swiss francs loss in the first quarter. Basically, they've had a 4.4 billion Swiss franc charge, plus other significant items that the bank said would have led to a profit of around about 3.6 billion francs. It would have represented the bank's best quarter operationally in at least a decade. So extreme frustration uh, from people in parts of the business that are doing really, really well uh, over at Credit Suisse. Frustrating uh, that these two twin issues, and again, the compliance issues, which have already seen a lot of scalps um, taken over at the bank. And, and Mr. Gottstein has uh, really taken very affirmative, very aggressive action to really trying to sort out on a personnel front where these problems occurred as well. But are things going to be better going forward? Well, I would suggest that there are still issues going forward and perhaps not of Credit Suisse's own making, but they're saying they would expect the second quarter to reflect a slowdown in market 
market activity. In fact, there will still be a residual impact of approximately 0.6 billion Swissy uh, from the US hedge fund issue uh, that would, of course, occurred in the last quarter. And the bulk of that 4.4 billion Swiss franc issue was unwinding those trades. But you want to know, have they got rid of those positions? Well, they have. Pretty much. They're saying they've now exited 97% of the related positions and expect to take an additional loss, uh, as I say, of about 0.6 billion Swissy uh, in connection with this matter uh, in the second quarter. But again, there are regulatory headaches as well ongoing. They say they are in close engagement with Finmar and all relevant regulators regarding those uh, recent events. Finmar has initiated two enforcement proceedings with regard to the US um, a US-based hedge fund and supply chain finance matters. Of course, that would be Greensill as well. So, Karen Cho, very good morning to you, my great friend. Look, I would suggest that Thomas Gottstein is doing his absolute best to not so much kitchen sink, but draw a line under the scale of the losses, the ramifications from it, the risk management issues as well. But unfortunately, as the shares are showing, they can't just move on that quickly. And the shareholders, they may want to see more confirmation that there aren't going to be regulatory penalties, that this company has sorted out its risk issues uh, and maybe rebuilding that trust will take a little bit longer. It's a calamity, isn't it, to go from having one of the best starts of your, your year in many years to producing a loss in the quarter. It just tells you how badly the fortunes of the bank have been damaged. And by one exposure, we keep hearing more and more stories that are emerging around Archegos. And one is that the bank didn't even know this was a major client until uh, some of these exposures started to come to light, which is just extraordinary, isn't it, that uh, you don't know a major client or that this particular company is a major client. And then it can rock your entire property for the quarter, possibly even longer. Now, we are seeing, of course, uh, this expose as to the exposures and trying to wind down some of those positions. But there are still estimates out there in the analyst community that perhaps next quarter we could still see some impact. And that's something that the bank is not commenting on yet. Uh, JP Morgan has estimated around another $400 million in a hit this quarter from unwinding those exposures. So we'll wait to hear about that in terms of uh, what we are seeing too, the capital raising. Don't forget, you think about where banks were at. We just got through uh, some of the, the heightened fears around COVID-19 and the sort of losses banks could be sitting on, just whether further provisions were going to be required, whether capital raisings might still be an issue. And you've got a bank now that has had to turn back to shareholders and raise more capital because of this one exposure. So that's a, a fairly significant negative, the $203 million, uh, that it's been issuing uh, through, uh, through notes, uh, convertible notes. So I think that's just an extraordinary turn of events when you've had a bank that has started so well. And you've just mentioned an, another aspect here. You had a strong tailwind from the trading portfolios for a very strong market. If some of that starts to fade, you don't have the same amount of cover that you've had in the last 12 months or so during the pandemic. Yeah, all of the above. And, and unfortunately, as I say, it's at a time when the US banks are absolutely cleaning up on their investment banking activity and are seeing a huge increase in domestic um, activity in domestic financing as well as, as the US economy comes out of uh, what has been, of course, a devastating pandemic. We're not seeing that same acceleration of activity in Europe as well. So bread and butter business plus investment banking working very well for the US investment banks at the moment. But as you say, uh, the MCN capital raising here, regulatory concerns going forward, a quieter second quarter, the fact that Europe hasn't had that same acceleration in, um, in recovery on an economic front that we have so far seen in the United States. It doesn't necessarily add up to the scale of headaches that we have had in the first quarter, but it does make 
make the recovery very difficult for Credit Suisse going forward, as indeed it does for all of the European banks that have aspirations to compete on a global scale with the US investment banks as well. But to look, there's a whole host of issues there. I know very well, because I've already been talking to him, that Jeff is looking at a couple of other big issues as well, uh, and they will all be addressed. In fact, they probably are all being addressed as I speak with the Credit Suisse CEO, Thomas Gottstein. And we're going to bring you that interview. It is under embargo uh, at till 8 CET. Karen, you've got more to say. I was just going to jump in with a comment about what lies ahead. I mean, I started out the commentary, we were talking about the fact that the bank didn't even know that this was a major client and the impact on, on the overall bank. Uh, Gottstein's gone back over some of the supply chain finance, but I think the question the market has still, is there anything else? What else is in the cupboard? If you didn't know this was a major client, who else is out there that you do not know is a major client and could have a monumental impact on earnings? That's the lingering question for a lot of investors. If it's, we, we you know, put it out there and say, uh, what is uh, the, the, can we run the rule around this particular crisis? Yeah, I, w- I will say one thing. Thomas Gottstein is coming up for interview today. He's going to take a lot of this on the chin. And I tell you what, from our experience, Karen, and Jeff's experience doing this, there are plenty of CEOs out there when the crisis hits. You see them all when the times are good, but when the real crisis is there, you don't see them for love nor money for a couple of years until things get better again. So one thing I will say is that he clearly uh, feels that he's uh, on the front foot, ready to address this multitude of issues, which you quite rightly say has shaken confidence uh, in one of the most important systemic important banks in Switzerland and Europe as well. So I will give them credit for that. The fact they're coming on the front foot and they're coming on to speak to us. And as I say, our very own Jeff will be asking those, I think, very probing questions. Karen, moving on to SAP. We've got another great CEO coming up a little bit later on, but you've been pouring over the first quarter numbers as well. It's uh, been a company that has had a a fairly uh, difficult journey, despite the fact the conditions should have been pretty strong during the pandemic with all of the trends we're seeing towards remote working, remote learning, namely uh, the use of the cloud. Uh, but we did have a fairly weak outing late last year, and that did rock the share price. But uh, the company producing preliminary earnings about a week ago, now producing numbers today, it says uh, it's confirmed its guidance that non-IFRS Q1 revenue has risen 2% a constant currency to 6.35 billion euros, operating profit up 24% to 1.74 billion. It's added more than 400 S4 HANA customers in the first quarter to bring the total to 16,400, of which 9,600 are live. So talking about the the level of activity, it's seeing very strong order entry growth across our application portfolio. The CEO going on to say a new rise with the SAP offering, becoming a, a massive accelerator for customer business transformation. They're on track to deliver robust cloud growth. So uh, that's uh, the commentary that we're witnessing. But uh, clearly, we're going to be looking for a little bit more detail throughout the morning. We speak to the SAP CEO, Christian Klein, exclusively at 7.40 CET. Excellent, Karen. I'm looking forward to that one as well. Look, if you could spin back 24 hours, I was standing here at the wall saying, look, yes, we've had a couple of downtick days on the market, but the follow through has been so poor this year, i.e., that when we've had the downtick days, the market's always managed to bounce back quite quickly. Well, look, I didn't know anything was going to happen, but that's exactly what did happen today. Whether it's got legs, again, remains to be seen. But as we said yesterday, is this just a recalibration uh, before investors get back in? And the problem for those who are trying to short the market, for those who are very concerned about what I think are very 
justifiably worrisome valuations. The problem for those people who are trying to trade on the back of that concern is the fact that you've got a lot of factors conspiring against you. You've got monetary factors, fiscal factors, economic growth factors. By the way, these are good things if you want to see economic recovery in many ways. Uh, but you've also got a central bank which is basically very concerned about keeping a cap on those 10-year yields and as such keeping a cap on some of the most worrisome aspects for those players in the market who are concerned about valuations. The other point you've got is the fact that the earnings season is really, really going well, for instance. If I said to you 70 out of 50 companies in the S&P so far uh, have reported, well, they've had a 23% upside from the analysts' expectations. Now, that's no great surprise that they're beating, but by beating by over 20%, I think that's quite an interesting margin as well. That's not to say there aren't some enormous headaches out there. On another day, we'll go through uh, a lot more of those, but safe to say, uh, the pandemic is still wreaking havoc and terror and it's just awful ramifications in large parts of the world. And that is having ramifications on businesses and travel and all kinds of things. That's why we're going to speak to uh, uh, Willie Walsh, the boss of IATA, in a very short while. So let me just roughly quickly go through these markets. That's what happened to the, the major indices, all rallying across the board as well. Russell 2K also had a big rally. Again, uh, this one was up 2.4%. I want to have a quick look at the treasuries. I mentioned the cap on the 10-year. Well, look, look at where we are. We're on 1.53. I think we got up to 1.56 yesterday, but that was the best of it there as well. Uh, in terms of the opening calls for European markets, it'll be very interesting to see if we have much of a bounce back there. But let's move on because one of the big events today is the ECB, Karen. Uh, Steve, yes, closely watching cur currency markets as a result. Uh, we've climbed back up to the 120 mark on the euro after we saw 117 roughly in the past few weeks. So let's see whether this is going to be a, a big risk event for foreign exchange markets today. Yes, the ECB is expected to keep rates on hold and the pace of its emergency bond buying scheme steady when the governing council meets later today. However, analysts will be looking out for any signs of adjustment to the ECB's PEP program. This is President Christine Lagarde faces calls to begin scaling back purchases as the vaccine rollout across Europe accelerates and conditions begin to improve. Our colleagues Germana and Juliana will bring you the ECB's latest decision today at 13.30 CET, Steve. Right, and uh, we're not going to get far away from this Arcagos and Credit Suisse story today. So for more on how the Arcagos and Greensill scandals have hit Credit Suisse, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. All right, let me tell you a little story quickly because I know we've got Willie Walsh waiting in the wings and uh, that's for a different story. Um, consumer products groups tend to grow at 4 to 5% a year. That, that's kind of it. So your Nestle's, your Danone's, your Procter & Gamble's, your Unilever's, that's what they grow historically at, okay? Or that's what they aspire to grow at. And whether they can make margin on that product remains to be seen. Danone is absolutely awful in terms of their performance at the moment. They can blame the leadership. They can blame the getting misguided. They can blame the wrong products. Yesterday, we had the Danone figures, like for likes, first quarter down 3.3%. Awful figures, yeah? This is what they want to aspire to the, the, over the uh, border in Switzerland. Nestle, first quarter organic sales up 7.7%, according to 
my Reuters copy. That looks like a huge number compared with 3.3 positive forecast. Not the 3.3 negative we have from Danone, 3.3 forecast over at Nestle. I mean, these look like, if that is correct and there's no correction coming, that is a blockbuster number. Uh, first quarter sales, 21.1 billion Swissy versus 20 billion expected in a poll as well. They say they expect a continued improvement in organic growth in 2021, confirming their midterm outlook. That, ladies and gentlemen at Danone, is what you should be aspiring to. The quite superlative performance over at Nestle. Slight problem for you. Nestle shared straight at 23 and a half times forward. Danone's traded around about 17 times forward. A lot of it, I'm afraid, has already been factored in the outperformance of Nestle versus Danone. President Biden will today host a virtual climate summit with around 40 other global leaders, including Chinese President Xi Jinping, who is expected to deliver a speech during the two-day meeting. Biden is hosting the gathering ahead of COP26, set to take place in Glasgow later this year. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for a whole-of-the-economy approach as she set a net-zero emissions target by 2035. Speaking at the Institute of International Finance, Yellen acknowledged the target is bold, but said America is no longer sitting on the sidelines. Delivering those contributions will require bold and urgent action, nothing less than transforming important sectors of the global economy especially when it comes to how we generate power and move people in goods. Many stakeholders have been working tirelessly toward this goal, including several of our international partners, the private sector, and some U.S. states. After sitting on the sidelines for four years, the U.S. government is fully committed to rejoin the fight against climate change. President Biden has outlined an ambitious strategy to transition the United States to net zero emissions and has mobilized the entire government to achieve it. The air travel industry will recover slower than expected in 2021, with airlines set to post over $47 billion in losses this year. This according to the International Air Transport Association. IATA estimates air travel will return to just 43% of pre-pandemic levels this year. The association is now calling on governments to help jumpstart the industry-wide recovery. Uh, delighted to welcome back to the show Willie Walsh, who is now the Director General and CEO of IATA. And Willie, um, really nice to uh, speak to you today. Look, uh, as much as I have stunning empathy for the ladies and gentlemen in your industry and how tough it has been for anyone trying to keep a business going uh, with or without government support, the fact of the matter is when you've got one of the world's largest economies, i.e. India, having an infection rate of nearly 300,000 in the last 24 hours, alone is now the time to start opening up air travel well i think it's very safe to open air travel in certain areas we're not suggesting that you just remove all of the restrictions that are in place today uh, but there's clear evidence that the infection is coming under control in a number of countries because of the actions that have already been taken and it's important to remember you know governments have withdrawn taken away the freedom that you have had 
to travel, uh, the, the freedom to uh, visit friends and families. And you would expect that that's done in extreme circumstances. It's not done on the basis of a, uh, a belief that there might be a problem. It's done because there's hard facts to support the decisions that they're taking. So we believe that uh, progress, significant progress has been made and that air travel can be reopened on a safe basis in certain parts of the world. So, so Willie, you're flying directly in the face, if you don't mind me saying so, of the US State Department, which has added at least 116 countries to its do not travel list advisory, including the United Kingdom, which has a high vaccination rate as well. You're saying the State Department is wrong, sir? No, I think uh, uh, things change and it will change over time. And we're not suggesting that you just remove all restrictions now. I think what we need to do is prepare for the restrictions being removed because it will be difficult for airlines just to go from where they are today to towards a normal operation. They will need time to do that, time to build up. So what we're asking for is for governments to set out a plan to give an indication as to when they believe international air travel can start and how international air travel should operate when things do get moving again. Willie, it's Karen jumping in. I want to talk about how uneven the crisis may be now across the world. So looking at some of your stats on 2021 demand and also 2021 capacity, and it feels as though Europe is not having a great crisis, demand down steeply, and uh, when you look at the capacity side, down 57-odd percent, uh, the numbers seem to be slightly better out of the United States in terms of taking out capacity. So perhaps the, the cost side is a little bit better to get back on their feet down the track. What do you make of uh, where we stand at on a global scale? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it reflects the structure of uh, the international and domestic airline market because the US has a very large domestic market where travel restrictions have not really been in place. So if you look at it, about two thirds of the US market is domestic, whereas in Europe, uh, about 11% is domestic flying. So Europe has a much smaller domestic operation and therefore has been exposed to international travel restrictions to a much greater degree than the uh, US industry. Uh, I think Europe, um, the EU has handled this badly. Uh, I, I think you know, one of the great achievements of the European Union has been the freedom of movement, you know, what's enabled people to work anywhere and travel anywhere. Uh, and that freedom, a fundamental freedom of the EU has been significantly restricted. But it hasn't been done on a coordinated basis across Europe. It's been done by each individual country taking their own decisions. So I, I think the recovery reflects the structure of the market. The U.S. Uh, is recovering faster. Uh, I think airlines all across the world have taken the right steps to ensure that they can survive what has been the deepest crisis ever faced by the industry. And uh, I believe, you know, we, we should be optimistic. Uh, I, I think the industry will recover. Uh, I think it is in uh, the best possible shape, given what it's come through. And once we see these travel restrictions eased, uh, and I'm not suggesting that they're just automatically removed overnight, but once they start easing, then the demand is, is it's very clear. There's huge pent-up demand. People want to get back flying and airlines want to be able to serve customers again. I agree with you around the pent-up demand, and I think some of it already exists for summer, but there's significant uncertainty even with vaccination programs being rolled out as to what the impact of variants could be if we allow travel across many parts of the world, particularly here in Europe. And how do you think about the European summer season at this point? Do you think it's going to be one where we do see a decent amount of travel, enough for the airlines to actually bring in some cash flow at this point? 
I, I think there's uh, good reason to be optimistic about a, a late summer season, um, you know, starting in the second half. We had hoped to get things moving again in the first uh, second quarter of this year. Uh, what we have seen previously, when restrictions are relaxed, there's an immediate response from consumers. You know, so that demand, as I've said, is very, very strong underlying. And once people have confidence that they can travel when it's safe and that they're not going to get caught with uh, quarantine requirements either uh, to the, at their destination or when they return, uh, and we've, we've seen very clear evidence of this, then they, they will travel. So uh, I think at this point, given the pace at which the vaccine rollout is taking place in Europe uh, and the degree to which the health crisis has uh, to a large degree uh, come under control because we're not seeing the same high volumes of people in hospitals and in intensive care. And, and these restrictions, it's important to remember, were put in place to protect the health system. Uh, the immediate crisis was a risk that health systems would be uh, overrun by the pandemic. Uh, I think that immediate crisis has been addressed and I think we should be optimistic that people will be able to start travelling again uh, as we go into the summer. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.